The sermon text for today is Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. And you can find this passage in the Pew Bible on page 787. Listen as I read God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here together with you today if I haven't had the chance to meet you. My name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here. And I want to invite you at the beginning of our time here today, uh, would you stand with me? We are looking at Psalm 1. And obviously, as you heard, just read uh, Psalm 19. Uh, We're doing a series on Psalm 1 called The Prosperous Life. And part of what we are setting out to do as a congregation is to memorize Psalm 1 which is only six verses, uh, but part of what we have to help us memorize that is just every week we're going to repeat it over and over all throughout this message series. There's also little cards that are out on the connection table that have Psalm 1 on it, and so we invite you to take those and use that at home as a tool to help you in your memorization of Psalm 1. Uh, But would you uh, join together with me in uh, reading this together? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Would you stay standing as we pray? God, we ask this morning that as we look at what it means to delight in your law, to delight in your instruction, that you would Uh, do a heart work inside of us. Lord, we ask that by a powerful working of your spirit that you would meet us here today and that you would cause us to leave here people uh, whose hearts do delight in your instruction. Lord, change us. uh, Meet us here, we pray, in a unique and special way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Every good parent puts rules in place for their children. Even if you don't have children, I think we all know uh, the necessity of this. A couple of the rules that we have at our house uh, are things like you have to brush your teeth before you go to bed, okay? Uh, You only get one set of adult teeth, and the practices and the habits that you build now taking care of those baby teeth is going to lead you, uh, it's going to serve you well as those uh, adult teeth come in. So you have to brush your teeth every night before you go to bed. And uh, I don't know if there's other parents in the room that have experienced uh, difficulty with this kind of thing, but it seems like uh, sometimes our children are dead set on not doing this. Uh, There's negotiation involved. There's all sorts of things. It takes longer than it should. But you must brush your teeth. Uh, Another one of the rules we have in our house is you have to clean up your activities, uh, your games, your toys, your puzzles, whatever it is that you're playing with, before we will give you your afternoon snack and treat. You know, we got to hold that incentive out there in front of them because otherwise, within three days of not cleaning up after ourselves, the house looks like it was ransacked. <laughs> and uh, so we have the rule. You have to clean up before you're able to get the, tra- the treat and the snack. Another one of those rules we have is that there is a certain portion of the driveway that they're not allowed to be on when they're riding their bikes. There's the, the sort of the skirt at the end of the driveway that's in between, you know, where the concrete is and the, the road. And so we say, you are not allowed to go on that small little part at the end of the driveway. You've got to leave sort of a buffer zone between you and the traffic that's on our street. Now, I think that these are uh, somewhat reasonable. And there's also the things that, you know, as a parent, you never thought you would have to say. <laughs> you know, I wish I would have kept a record of all these things where it's like, no, you cannot put yogurt in your pocket. You know, <laughs> all the things that you just, you just think, I, in, in a million years, I never thought I would have to say this, you know. Uh, there's warning labels because of people like you, <laughs> you know. It's like you look at a blow dryer and it's like, don't use this in the shower. And it's like, someone did that. <laughs> and now there's a rule because of it. And so there's all the things that, you know, that, that are the reasonable things, all the rules we have in place that we never thought we'd have to say. Uh, and basically, uh, the reality is that every single one of us, we all grow up with an ecosystem of rules in our home. And then as we go out into the world, we recognize as, you know, as kids, like you don't like all those rules and you want to get out of the house. And then you go out into the real world and realize that, oh, there's rules everywhere. Okay, so if you're in school, there are classroom rules. If you are in college, there are campus rules, there are dorm room rules. When you start driving a car, there are traffic rules, many, many traffic rules that you have to memorize and you have to follow or else you will get tickets and it will cost you. If you're in the workplace, there are workplace rules, there's employee handbooks, there's conduct expectations. If you live in an apartment, there are rules that you have to follow as far as how loud you can be at what hours of the day, what parts of the property you can use and when. If you are uh, a part of, if you live in a, in a home or have some sort of uh, a part of uh, maybe a homeowner's association or a townhome, there's, there's city rules, there's city ordinances that you have to know and you have to follow. So there are rules that are all around us in every single part of life. And I think it's fair to say that basically nobody delights in rules. Now, there are some people who do like the clarity and the safety that are a byproduct of those rules, Okay. And that's a legitimate thing. There are some people who really like uh, rules or laws as a kind of um, necessary evil that keeps people from doing dumb things that they shouldn't do. At least that's the idea of those rules is that they're supposed to keep people from doing those things that they shouldn't do. But there isn't anyone that I'm aware of anyone anyway who just simply delights in having rules in place. Our hearts don't leap 
when we hear the word law, right? There's something of a necessary evil. This is uh, uniquely true, I think, in the spiritual realm as well. There are uh, a lot of people who are turned off by religion in general, and in Christianity in particular, because their perception is that the, the Bible is a big rule book. It's a book that has just, it's just filled with these tedious and boring rules and laws and all these things that, you know, ruin your fun and tell you you can't do all the stuff that you want to do. And the Bible is just sort of, <laughs> the perception is that it's this, uh, that it's just this rule book. And, and, and it almost feels in some ways like, you know, one of those carnival games that's rigged against you where you can't win. And so God has given you all these rules, knowing that you'll never be able to keep them, and so you spend your whole life living under the weight of guilt and shame for not being able to live up to God's expectations. The rules are there to, uh, to limit your freedom, and especially in uh, the modern sort of context that we find ourselves in, the, the rules and the instruction that we see in the Bible are not just sort of outdated. They're not just sort of, oh, well, I'm glad that works for you. The rules and the instruction that we see given to us in the Bible are viewed not just as outdated, but as uh, harmful to society. And of course, if this is what the Bible is all about, then we should not delight in the law. If that's what it is. If it's a killjoy, if the law is just a bunch of arbitrary rules that God put in place so we can't keep it anyways and we can never make God happy, we ought not to delight in the law. We should not listen to Psalm 1 when it says the flourishing person is the one whose life is founded upon a delight in the instruction of God. But the good news is, the Bible gives us a completely different picture of what the law is and tells us that the law itself is good news for us. There is good reason to delight in the law. And that's what we're going to be thinking about here this morning. As we look at this passage from Psalm 1, as well as these verses from Psalm 19, I want to just sort of organize our time around two questions. Uh, first, what is the law? And second, why should we delight in it? Okay, that's where we'll spend our time here today. And so let's first think together about what is the law? So in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That word that's translated law there is a word, uh, the original word is Torah. You maybe have heard of this. Uh, so what is the Torah? What is the law? Well, we talked about this uh, a little bit last week, and I think that it's, uh, and we're not going to just repeat everything we said, but it's important for us to, uh, especially with something like this, to hear this maybe more than once, because this is, I think, for a lot of followers of Jesus, uh, territory that not many of us have stepped really deeply into. Uh, but I think it's important for us to realize that when we, when we think about the Torah, uh, the Torah, which is a word that just means instruction. That's what the word Torah means. When we look at the Bible, the Torah, uh, with a capital T, is referring to more than just the Ten Commandments. It's referring to more than just all of the instructions and the rules and the regulations and the do this and the don't do that that we see in the book of Leviticus. And then we see in the book of, you know, some, some in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy, those places that we think of as, okay, God gave us the law. Certainly, the Torah, the law, includes those things. But remember that a significant portion of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, remember that a significant portion of those are narrative and the Torah, with a capital T, is, uh, is technically the books of Moses. 
So those first five books of the Bible, which you may have uh, called the Pentateuch before, that's the same thing, the first five books of Moses, those are the Torah. And in the Torah, in the instruction of the Lord that he gave to us in those books, there is not just commandments, not just laws and regulations, there's a whole lot of narrative in there that tells us about God's saving and delivering activity in the world. And so all of the stories of failure that we see in the Torah, in those first five books of the Bible, those are all intended to be instruction for us. So when we see Adam and Eve choosing to do what is right in their own eyes instead of listening to the instruction of the Lord, and we see the devastating consequences that has, reading the story of Adam and Eve is designed to, it's, it's supposed to be instruction for us. It teaches us. When we see Abraham, God calls him and his wife Sarah and says, I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you biological descendants. And the first thing they do when they get into the land is there's a famine and they become scared and they leave the land and go to Egypt and Abraham basically gives away his wife. Because he was thinking, okay, they're going to see that my wife is very beautiful and they're going to kill me and take her, so why don't you just say that you're my sister? And what happens is, yes, they do recognize how beautiful she is and she gets taken into Pharaoh's household in all likelihood to be a part of his harem. So we see Abraham, who's been promised a land and descendants, leaves the land and gives up his wife, who's the source of his descendants. And you see just the abysmal failure of Abraham in that moment, and that story is supposed to instruct us. When we see Israel, God's people, all throughout the Old Testament, they create a golden calf. They grumble and they complain against God and against the leaders that God has put over them, And it's just this constant, stiff-necked, hard-hearted group of people who seems bent on doing the opposite of what God wants them to do. And all of those stories about how they failed and how they lived in rebellion against God, those are all supposed to be instruction for us. Those stories all teach us something about who God is. They teach us about who we are. They teach us about what humanity is like. They teach us about what our world is like, and all of those stories together, both the positive ones and the negative ones, are intended to instruct us. Now, there's far fewer of the positive stories (laughs) that we see in uh, in the Bible, but you do get positive examples. So Abraham, after the complete failure of giving away his wife in Egypt, they make it back to the promised land, and eventually, after this son of promise comes along, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, I want you to take him onto the top of Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. He is to be wholly and completely devoted to me as you would an animal sacrifice. And in the face of having no idea how God is gonna work this all out, this is the son of promise that he waited 25 years to even birth and now 15, 20 years later, God is saying, you're gonna kill him? And in the face of the bewilderment of God asking him to do that, Abraham demonstrates an unbelievable amount of faith and says, I believe that either God could raise him from the dead or God will provide me with another son. God will make a way because I know him. And so he demonstrates an incredible amount of faith. And that story and stories like it are designed to instruct us. They're designed to teach us. When the spies are sent out to look at the land, and to come back with a report of what the land is like that God is giving them. Basically, all the spies come back and they say, uh, the people are too numerous, the people are too strong for us, they're going to kill us and swallow us alive, so we should just kind of stay out here in the desert. (laughs) 
And Caleb, on the other hand, says, what are you talking about? God has promised that he's going to give us this land. And so in the face of looking at all of the the danger that's ahead of them, in the face of seeing we are this ragtag group of untrained people who have no military experience, and we're going to go into this land and take it over, in the face of all of that, Caleb has demonstrated this incredible faith in God and his promises. And that story is designed to instruct us. So you see, all of the stories, both of failure as well as of success, that we see, all those narratives are designed to teach us and instruct us. Those are Torah. And it's not just the narratives. Every single poem, every single song, every single piece of poetry, they all in a unique way instruct us. And so we look to the Torah and we recognize that it's more than, God's law is more than just the do's and don'ts. God's law is his instruction for right living. That's what the Torah is. Torah is God's instruction for right living. It's God's instruction that enables us to live in alignment with his created design for us. And so we see the instruction that God gives and it reveals something of who he is and then we say, okay, if that's who God is, if God is a God of mercy and compassion and patience, if he cares for those who are vulnerable, if he's a God of justice, if he is those things, how ought my life ought to, ought to be? And so we see the nature and who God is, and then we let that teach us and instruct us, and it gives shape to our lives. So we see the instruction, we see the law that God gives us, and we see that it leads us to right living. So that's what the law is. That's what the Torah is. It's God's instruction for right living. But then the second question that we should ponder this morning for a few moments is, why should we delight in it? Yes, we know what it is, but why is it that we should delight in it? And the very simple answer to that question is, we delight in the law because it reveals the law giver. We delight in the law because it reveals something about the God who gave the law in the first place. We see a little bit of a glimpse of this in Psalm 19 that you heard read just a few moments ago. In the first part of Psalm 19, David, what he does is he, uh, he delights in God as creator. We're not going to take time to uh, read those verses. But then in the second part of the psalm, he delights in God as the law giver. And what he does here is he delights in both the goodness and the value of God's instruction. So just notice what David says here about the law. So if you have Psalm 19 open, you can go ahead and look in verse 7. I just want to ask you to just notice the the number of words that he uses to uh, refer to the law here. He uses uh, the, the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the decrees of the Lord. And so all of these different words communicate a unique, distinctive thing about God's law, about his instruction. And if we had the time, we could look at how each of those contribute something unique to our understanding of what it is. But for our purposes today, just notice the totality, the comprehensiveness of what this law is that he is delighting in its goodness. So we see law, statutes, precepts, commands, decrees. But then notice also what he says about the law. He says the law of the Lord is perfect, meaning it is completely whole. It lacks absolutely nothing. The statutes of the Lord, they are trustworthy, meaning they are completely reliable in every single thing that they teach. Everything that the the Bible affirms to be true is unwaveringly reliable. 
is completely reliable in all things. The precepts of the Lord, they are right, meaning they will never lead us on the wrong path. They will never lead us down a path that we should not go. They are completely, uh, they are right. They will never mislead us. The commands of the Lord are radiant. It's a word that uh, sort of has the idea of brilliant and pure and bright. The decrees of the Lord are firm. It's a word that literally means true. They are true. They are permanently established. They are unshakable. They are unmovable. They don't change over time. So we see all the language that he uses to talk about God's law. And then he tells us what God's law is like. And then lastly, he tells us what God's law does. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, meaning that it renews us in the deepest part of our being. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So it makes us wise people. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. So this is not some cold academic exercise of just recounting what God's law is. This is something to be delighted in. It brings joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes, meaning that they renew life. The language of a person's eyes growing dim is sort of a a metaphor, it's a euphemism in the Old Testament for a person nearing death. And so the commands of the Lord, uh, these, these commands that are radiant and bright, they renew our life. And so this is what he is uh, delighting in, is he's delighting in the goodness of God's law. But then also, he doesn't just delight in the goodness of God's law, he also delights in the value of God's law. Verse 10 says, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So these commands... The instruction of the Lord is more precious than gold, than much gold. Uh, Gold is one of those things that, uh, for some reason, over time, just maintains a very high value. And so uh, today, in our modern world, gold is very valuable. The same thing was true in the ancient world. Gold was just about the most valuable thing that you could get your hands on. And what David is saying here is you can imagine the most valuable thing, and then you have much of it, And the instruction of God, the law of the Lord, is more valuable than even that. So if if you had to choose between winning the Powerball and having the instruction of the Lord, David says you would be a fool to choose the money. Because the, the instruction of the Lord, God's law, has a kind of value that mere material money cannot and will never have. So it is more valuable than much gold. Not only this, he says it's sweeter than honey. This is one of those things that in the modern world I think is lost on us a little bit. And that's because uh, artificial sweeteners are in literally everything we consume. So just look at the labels if you you don't already do that. Look at the labels of the things you purchase. Uh, Most things have some sort of added sugar, right? And uh, the, the amount of manufactured sweeteners that we consume, it dulls our senses to what is naturally sweet. Okay, so David didn't live in a world where there was Splenda. <laughs> he didn't live in a world with high fructose corn syrup that's like literally manufactured to be sweeter than honey. So we're used to consuming these things, and then we have like what is naturally sweet, and we eat fruit, and it's like, ah, that's okay. But it's certainly not as good as, <laughs> you know, the candy bar I had. Well, of course it's not, because it's manufactured sweetness, right? So we see David here 
what he's doing is he's saying, I, I, found, I, I took the example of the most valuable thing I could possibly think of. The instruction of the Lord is more valuable than that. I took the most sweet thing I could possibly think of. The instruction of the Lord is sweeter than even that. And notice how this is, this is again, this is not cold sort of theological language. This is experiential language. I, it's, it's, it's sweeter than honey. It's worth delighting in. This is, this is a, a person whose heart has been uh, affected by the law, by the goodness of God in his law, and by the value of it. So we see him laying out here this sort of case of uh, the goodness and the value of God's law. And ultimately, what David is doing here is he is delighting in God's instruction because through it, he has made himself known. In the first part of Psalm 19 that we didn't take time to look at, the familiar words, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And he's holding these things out saying, the creation tells us something about the creator. And in the second part of the psalm, he says, the law tells us something about the law giver. And that's why David delights in the law, not because he delights in uh, <laughs> the words on the page or, or following rules. He delights in what the law does and, and what its function is and how it reveals who God is, his nature, and his character. And so this is the exact same reason that we can read Psalm 1 and also have delight in God's law. We delight in God's law because through it we have access to him. That's the point. We delight in God's law. We delight in his instruction because through it we have access to him. He has made himself known and available to us through his law, through his instruction. And friends, this is the entire purpose of the law in the first place. The law is designed to tell us about who God is and invite us through his instruction into life in his presence. That's the very purpose of the law in the first place. And this is why David delights in it. This is why we should delight in it. This is why it makes perfect sense to delight in the law because through the instruction of God, he's made himself known. And he is delightful. He is valuable. And so we delight in his law to the degree that it reveals and it shows us and it points us towards him and tells us how we can be in relationship with him. God has done us one better than just giving us the written law. We delight in the law and God's instruction because he has made himself known, but he's made himself known not only in the written law, he's also made himself known most fully, we come to see in the New Testament through his son Jesus who is the embodiment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. And what that means is that every single thing that the law demanded, every single thing that God's instruction commands of us, everything we see revealed about who God is in his Torah, in his instruction, is summed up, is perfectly represented in the person and the work of Jesus, in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and his ascension and his ruling and reigning over all things. So yes, God gave us his written law, and if all we had was God's law, that would be a gift that we would never be able to earn. That's an unbelievable gift that God would give us his law. But God has given us more than just words on a page. He's given us his son. And friends, the reason that we need the instruction of God in the first place, the reason that we need God's law is because our hearts do not intuitively or instinctively delight in God and his instruction. 
That's the reality is that we are not born into this world desiring to love God or obey his instruction. Unless God miraculously intervenes, our hearts delight in all sorts of other things besides God and his instruction. And this all goes back to the first sin that we see in in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve who, yes, they broke the rules. God commanded them, don't eat of that tree, and they did it. So that first sin was, in part, a breaking of the rules. That first sin was, as we explored last week, in part, listening to the voice of the serpent instead of listening to the voice of Yahweh. It certainly was that, but on a more deeper, fundamental level than that, that first sin was misplaced affection, misplaced delight, misplaced worship. Remember what is said in Genesis 3, where the serpent tempts Eve, and and the text says, when she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, and when she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, and she ate it, and she gave it to to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So notice the language of pleasing and desirable. These are words of delight. So she saw what was held out to her in that fruit. The serpent said, you can become like God. You can have something that God has not given you already. And she delighted not in the piece of fruit. She delighted in the promise of what that fruit was said was hers if she took it. And so the first sin certainly was breaking the rules. It was listening to the wrong voice. But at the heart of it was a desire to have something that God has not given me. She believed the lie that God was holding back on her. And she delighted in whatever the fruit would bring to her. And that's what the first sin was. And we see that it unleashed a poison into the world. And we have all been experiencing the effects of that ever since. What's true about them is true about us. That our sin and the idolatry and the misplaced affection, the misplaced worship in our lives has separated us from God's presence. Our sin has exiled us from God's presence and we're told that God is the source of life. And so what that means, the Bible says that we, apart from the miraculous divine intervention of God to make us alive, we are all walking dead people. Sure, we have lots of signs of physical life and we have a kind of life physically. And yet Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we are dead in our sins. We are physically alive, yes, but we are spiritually completely, not just in a coma, not just injured and needing of help. We are completely dead in our sins because we've been separated from the presence of God who is the source of life. We've been exiled from his presence. And that is, of course, unless or until God miraculously intervenes. And the good news is that God has done just that. That God gave us not only his written word, he also gave us his son, who is the word incarnate. Jesus is the one who completely embodies and fulfills all of the law. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. So he obeyed God in everything. He obeyed the Father in following all of the specific commands. But it's more than that. You know, it's not as if Jesus went around his life and was like, okay, don't boil a baby calf in its mother's milk. Check, did that. Um, don't offer your children to Moloch. Well, I don't have kids, so check. You know, it's, it, it's not that he just like obeyed all the rules and it's like, wow, because you obeyed the rules, like you're good. 
He did more than just obeying all the rules. His heart fully delighted in his father. And so he not only obeyed the rules, his heart delighted in God the Father, delighted in his will, delighted in his plan for his life. And as a result of that, that led him to suffer the agony and the injustice of the cross so that we who have been exiled from God's presence can be brought back into his presence once again. We see that Jesus was cast out of the city. Jesus was hung on a cross and experienced, we're told, the curse of the one who does not follow God's law. He experienced the curse of the one who does not follow God's instruction in our place, even though we are the ones who do not follow God's instruction. And what we're told is that through simple faith in Jesus, through coming to him and and, and not bartering, not saying, okay, well, here's what I'm going to bring. If you can just sort of supply the rest, we don't come to God with our achievements, with our moral or spiritual achievements and say, okay, here's, here's the stuff that I've, you know, God, here, you know, is this a good enough offer? We don't bring those things to him. We come to him recognizing that we have nothing to offer. We are spiritually dead, and God makes us alive. It is entirely through the work of Jesus that we have been brought back to life once again. And because Jesus lived the life of obedience that we should have lived and have not lived, because Jesus delighted in God the Father the way that we were supposed to and yet never did, because Jesus suffered the consequences of someone who disobeyed God's law in our place, what it means is that when Jesus was raised from the dead and we trust in him, we are in union with him, which means that his delight in God the Father, that his life of obedience to God the Father, that his righteousness is ours. And so what we see is the beautiful good news that we have union with him and we delight in the law because it reveals the lawgiver. We delight in the law because it means we now have access to him and we delight in the law as it leads us to Jesus. That's why we delight in the law because it leads us forward to the person of Jesus and it's through him that we have what the law it was intended to do. The law was intended to provide a way for us to be granted access to God's presence And in the person of Jesus, we see that most fully and completely come to fruition where Jesus has cleansed us from our sin so that the presence of the Spirit can now reside with us and inside of us as his church. And so as we think about what what do we do to uh, sort of take this home, what are some uh, sort of points of application for this? I want to just briefly submit two uh, to you. Uh, The first is this, uh, pray for delight. Pray for delight. My guess is that for many of us here, if someone were to ask you, hey, tell me what it looks like in your sort of normal everyday rhythms to spend time in the word, to spend time in God's instruction. Tell me what it looks like for you to commune with Jesus by spending time in the Bible. Many of us would maybe sort of awkwardly be like, well, uh, I kind of this, kind of that, and we'd sort of, Uh, in a way, evade the question because we don't really have a good answer because we really don't. And so maybe the place to begin is to just ask God for delight. Ask God, will you give me a heart that wants to spend time in your instruction? Would you give me a heart that desires, that delights to read 
your scripture that you have inspired for my good, would you give me a heart that wants to do that because I don't in my own strength? And so we pray for delight. But not only that, we also practice that delight. So pray for delight and practice delight. And practice delight simply meaning we don't pray for God to change our heart and sit there with our Bible closed on the shelf. We dust the top of our Bible, this may be sat on the shelf or the coffee table for however long, and we actually open it and say, God, would you cause me to delight in your instruction? And the way we do that is by meeting him and encountering him in his instruction. And so it's not, God, would you please just give me a bunch of feelings and desires to want to read your Bible, and then we don't actually put anything into practice to do it. We pray for delight as we open our Bibles, as we open God's word, and as we actively try to practice delighting in him. And we look for, what, is this, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about Jesus? How, how does God want me to, how, how does this land with me? What does God want for me in this passage? What does God want for me in these verses? Is there someone I need to encourage with this? And so we, we not only pray for delight, but we actually practice delighting by simply opening our Bibles and actually reading it. And so that's my encouragement to you this morning is pray for delight and practice delight. Another one of the ways that we practice delight here at Elmwood each week is we come to the communion table. And as we come forward and as we receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we are reminded of the goodness and the faithfulness of God for us. We're reminded of the significance of the weight of our rebellion and idolatry, that it was so great that God had to send his son in order to suffer and die in our place. There was no other way. So we see the magnitude of that and we also see the magnitude of God's mercy and his grace towards us. And we get to receive Christ and we get to practice union with him by receiving the elements, not just in our hands, but actually ingesting those elements into our bodies. And in a unique way, those elements become a part of who we are. And it's sort of a picture of the union that we have with Christ, that we are united together through faith. And so as we come to the communion table, I invite you to be reminded of, of that and to view this as an opportunity to practice delighting in him. As we come to the table, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. God, we confess that at times it can be hard to delight in your instruction. It can be hard to delight in your revealed word. And so we ask, Lord, that you would Help us to delight in your instruction. Help us to see how it reveals you. Help us to see how it invites us into relationship with you and into a life of being in your presence. 
Lord, forgive us for the ways that our hearts are so quick to delight in things besides you. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that those other delights have crowded out the ultimate and highest delight of being in relationship with you. Lord, help us to fight for joy and for delight in the right places. Lord, forgive us of our sin and help us to delight in you. In your mercy, we pray that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.